Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Roger Hudson. And my name is Vicki Telios. And we're joined here today by John Ciancio, biology major here at Western University. How are you doing, John? I'm good. How are you doing, Roger? Fantastic. Thanks for, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me. How did you actually get involved here at Western University? You're in biology here. Yes, yes, I'm doing my master's in biology. Um, it actually started about four years ago. Um, I started as a summer student working for Agriculture Canada, hmm. working on a project with a research scientist there, looking at invasive insect pests. And I worked there for two summers as a research student. And Very then cool. that kind of spun into a master's project here at Western. Very cool. Yeah. And you're working with the same lab as you did during those two internships? And Yes. So I'm actually co-supervised. Um, one of my supervisors is the same research scientist, uh, Dr. Tara Garapi from hmm. Agriculture Canada here in London. Okay. And my other supervisor is Brent Sinclair, who's in the uh, biology department here at Western. Very interesting. And you must have enjoyed your years during your undergraduate degree, uh, got your uh, leg in on the field work, and now you're going in for the uh, hardcore research here in the graduate degree. Exactly. A little bit of field work still in my degree, which was nice. Uh, it was nice to have that incorporated throughout. Um, definitely lab intensive as well. So uh, it's been it's been a good time so far, yeah. And it's primarily a, uh, I guess, a thesis-oriented degree, or would it be a course-based uh, master's program? This is thesis-oriented, so research-oriented, yeah. Very I only cool. had to take two courses for my degree here. Okay, cool. So when you did your thesis towards your, um, so your undergrad th- thesis towards your graduate thesis, is there any overlap? Is it sort of the same project, or did you upgrade or move on to something even bigger than what you were doing before? So when I was working at Agriculture Canada, a lot of that work was um, field work that was going towards another PhD student's project. And she was working on the brown marmorated stink bug and looking at different, um, they're called parasitoid insects, which are used for biocontrol purposes. I can get into those (laughs) details a little bit later. Okay. Um, So she was doing that project and I was helping with the field work. And uh, I continued to work with the brown marmorated stink bug just in a different discipline now. Okay, so it seems like your entire project is stink bugs. So so what is the tie that stink bugs have with, I guess, Canada and how relevant are they in what we see every day? You can probably see them around pretty much everywhere here in London. Um, So the stink bug that I work with is called the brown marmorated stink bug. Mm -hmm. It is an invasive agricultural pest, so it's native to East Asia, parts Mm -hmm. of China, Taiwan. And it came to North America in about 1996, so Mm -hmm. mid-90s. And since then, has spread throughout the United States and can be found in three different Canadian provinces as well. So the reason we're so concerned about it and why I want to pursue this project or wanted to continue working with this species is because of its agricultural pest status. So Mm -hmm. um, it will cause significant damage, uh, and it has been shown to cause significant damage to crops in the States. Um, Mm -hmm. Parts of Europe are experiencing some damage right now. Um, and it's not a huge problem yet in Canada, but populations are growing. Mm-hmm. And within the next few years, I think it could be causing some pretty big damage within Ontario. So for the most part, then, it's causing financial damage to farmers and crops that you know are supporting Canadians and, I guess, individuals all across North America. But for the most part, it's not actually invading uh, inside of individuals' homes or anything like that. Um, actually, so that's that's kind of the fun oh, no. part with this. Um, <laughs> Should so, we be concerned? <laughs> yes. So uh, BMSB is actually considered a nuisance pest as well. So not only are they feeding on agricultural crops, they 
overwinter, so they spend their winters indoors in a lot of mm -hmm. anthropogenic structures. So oh, okay. um, in London in particular, around um, probably closer to September, October-ish, you may start to see these little bugs. I guess they're not too little. Um, <laughs> you may see these bugs crawling around your walls or crawling within mm -hmm. your attics and windowsills. So they will actually move indoors as um, mm -hmm. fall starts and they'll stay there throughout the winter and kind of wait it out. Wow, to avoid the cold temperature changes that are outside. Yep, mm -hmm. yep, to avoid all the different environmental changes that are happening, yeah. And now you mentioned that, I guess this, um, throughout the states, that, that that's where they spread out throughout Canada. So yes. would this uh, also affect the stink bugs in the southern states where the temperature isn't fluctuating as much as it is here in Canada? Um, so as far as I know, they actually aren't in too many of the southern states. Hmm. Um so if we're thinking of like Florida or Texas or thing or sure, the states warmer. like exactly yeah, yeah. um the first population that established in the United States was in Pennsylvania and mm -hmm. since then they've kind of spread within states that are similar in terms of climate so mm -hmm. you can find them in Virginia you can find them in New York state New Jersey all along that east coast um all the way to California you can find them in northern California um so yeah, not too many that I know of that are in the southern states or the warmer climates that kind of experience less fluctuations in terms of temperature or, or environmental conditions. Yeah. So a bit of a naive question. So these are called stink bugs. Do they actually stink? <laughs> I get that question a lot. Um, personally, I don't think they smell that bad. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think if you were to smell it for the first time, you might be taken aback a little bit, but it's nothing that's extremely overwhelming. I'm mm -hmm. used to it. I've been working with them for four years though, so I might have a leg up in that in that case. <laughs> you like them a little bit. I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. So do they have a natural aroma or is it, do you have to squish a bug for it to smell or just living? Do they have a smell? Um, it's more so when they're stressed out. So they'll okay. release, they'll release what's called an alarm pheromone okay. and that warns other stink bugs that are around them that there's something mm -hmm. around, like some sort of danger. Yeah. Oh, so it's like a skunk, I guess. Kind of, kind, kind of. of. I know trees. Trees release mm. a pheromone to other trees when they're being invaded. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So it's a form okay. of semiochemical communication. Yeah. Very interesting. Oh, yeah. Nice. Okay. So is that their primary form of communication? Is through, I guess, insecticide or olfactory pheromones? Yeah, like definitely that? through okay. olfactory. Yeah. So they have mm -hmm. alarm pheromones. They have aggregation pheromones, and that's actually what they use in the fall and winter as they're getting into those overwintering sites that they're going mm -hmm. to. So. Um, when they're kind of congregating or aggregating in your homes, they're releasing these pheromones, which are drawing other stink bugs towards them. So you clearly have a, a passion for these stink bugs, John. W what exactly are you studying in, in the lab and how are you taking part in studying it? So my project is broken down into three main objectives. Um, the first of which is to characterize their tolerance to three different environmental stressors. So I'm looking at their tolerance to low temperatures, um, desiccation and energy drain or energy consumption. Okay. Mm -hmm. Desiccation. Can you explain that a little bit more for so, the listeners? Yeah. Yeah. So desiccation deals with their water balance. So looking at, um, if they can maintain their water balance or if they're losing water at a significant rate. Dehydration and things like that. Dehydration is a, yeah, another term you can use. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. And how, how are you actually going about studying this? Do you have different groups that are exposed to different, uh, sets of temperatures or, uh, water consumption in, in these ways? Yeah. So, um, my, my project is broken up into two components. So I have a field component. So through the winter of 2016, 2017 and 2017, 2018, mm -hmm. I, 
placed BMSB, which I had caught in the field, um, I placed them into different overwintering microhabitats. And at different time points throughout the winter, I took samples of those bugs and brought them to the lab and took measures of their tolerance to those different stressors, which I mentioned. Okay. Yeah. And, and what kind of measures would you take? Um, so in terms of measuring their tolerance to low temperatures or their cold tolerance, I took measures of their, um, I measured their supercooling point. So that is the temperature at which internal ice formation begins. So you can find out at what temperature they're freezing and how that plays a role in their cold tolerance, if they can tolerate that freezing or not. So do these stink bugs have blood? Is that what's freezing inside of them, or do they have some other kind of liquid circulating? So it would be water, um, and okay. most of their blood, or what's called hemolymphin insects, is made up of water, and okay. there are other um, solutes that are in that as well. Okay, um, okay. Yeah. So that's what's freezing if yes. there are ice yeah. particles. Yeah, so it would be inside. their water or their, their hemolymph or parts of that that are freezing, yeah. And I'm guessing that's detrimental to them, or is that something that's natural to the process of going through the winter? So it depends on the species, actually. So insects have two main cold tolerance strategies, the first of which is freeze tolerance. So freeze tolerant species are capable of surviving internal ice formation. So okay. they can freeze, and then once they're thawed out, they can survive as well. So uh, an example of that would be the woolly bear caterpillar, which is uh, you can find around here as well. Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not a pest, don't worry about it. Um, and there's also freeze-avoidant insects. So they will suppress their supercooling point, uh, but they die once they do freeze. So once mm -hmm. that ice formation begins, that is lethal to them. I see. Yeah. And there's a third kind of fringe strategy. Uh, mm -hmm. It's chill susceptibility. So it's not technically a strategy because they are dying at temperatures before mm -hmm. they freeze at. And that's actually what I found BMSB to be. So they are chill susceptible. They're dying before they freeze. Interesting. Yeah. So, so is that like almost like a counterproductive strategy in evolution? Because it seems like there's one batch of these uh, insects that are uh, tolerant to the cold, another batch that is adapted to fend off mm -hmm. being able to freeze, and this batch that seems to freeze even when they're <laughs> not supposed to. Yeah. The way it works with BMSB is um, it might be a factor of the fact that they do overwinter indoors. So mm -hmm. over indoors, they're not likely to experience ah, significantly mm -hmm. low temperatures. So they're not going to experience it. So they freeze, I found, uh, at about negative 15 degrees Celsius, negative 16 throughout the winter. It's pretty cold. Um, I think I'd freeze at that temperature. Exactly, exactly. But if you're hiding out indoors in a garage or in an mm -hmm. attic, you're likely not to experience temperatures right. anywhere near that range. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's one of your factors, I guess. So the desiccation part the low temperatures, and you mentioned there was a, a third factor that you were looking at? Yes, so I'm also looking at their energy consumption throughout okay. the winter. So yeah. what is your measure for that, for energy consumption? So I was looking at um, their two main energy stores. So insects mm -hmm. have, they accumulate lipids and they accumulate carbohydrates, okay. which they use for energy stores. Mm -hmm. So I quantified those in the lab. Mm -hmm. yeah. Did you notice anything different, I guess, with, it, with these bugs? Um, actually, throughout the winter, they did not experience any significant energy consumption. So they didn't oh. burn through a significant amount of energy, yeah, okay. which was kind of interesting. Hmm. Very efficient. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So if I understood that correctly, it's, it's that the insects store up a whole bunch of fat or lipids for just to stave off the, the winter months. But you're saying that they don't actually um, consume any of this stored up energy. So many insects do. Um, not all insects will accumulate lipids or carbohydrates, but it is it is a common trend or okay. a common um, strategy. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, in this case, the BMSB 
did not suffer from significant energy depletion throughout the winter. Yeah. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea why that might be the case? I do actually. Um, (laughs) So many insects overwinter in um, a state of dormancy called diapause. And in diapause, insects will reduce their metabolic rate. They'll reduce activity. And in many cases, they are not reproductively active. Hmm. Um, So in a lab colony, which is kind of another portion of my project, I was looking at differences in diapause and non-diapause BMSB. And I see that at low temperatures, so 5 to 10 degrees Celsius or 15 degrees Celsius, they are in fact suppressing their metabolic rate. And Mm -hmm. metabolic rate um, drives energy consumption. So if you are, for example, running around and you're um, working up a sweat, um, Mm -hmm. you're going to burn through energy stores at a significantly faster rate. Mm -hmm. But if you're kind of hanging out on a cool night, just relaxing, hanging out mm-hmm. indoors in a garage in an attic at five, 10 degrees Celsius, mm-hmm. you're not going to need to use significant amounts of energy. You're not doing, you don't have any energetic demands. You don't have uh, great energetic demands. Nothing going out. So you don't really need too much coming in in that way. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So by reducing metabolic rate, you reduce the need to feed because you're reducing mm-hmm. that need to burn through energy yeah hmm, very interesting so so is that the case then is that is are these uh uh msbs bmsb bmsbs are, are they going through like some sort of hibernation in that sense or are they still somewhat active throughout the wintry months um it's not a hibernation um in my in my diapause and non-diapause colonies I do see that there is reduced activity. I haven't quantified that in any way, mm-hmm. um, but just by based off observation, I am seeing reduced activity in okay. diapause. Yeah. So you're saying diapause. How would you induce diapause in a lab setting? Yeah. Um, so that is that can be species specific as well. Okay. So insects generally enter diapause in response to shifts in environmental cues. Mm-hmm. So that could be either temperatures in many cases mm-hmm. or um, day length. So in the case of brown armored stink bug, I rear them at uh, short day length. So I rear them under eight hours of light conditions versus 16 hours at, at nighttime. Okay. Um, and that will put them into diapause. Okay. So that sort of mimics the, the winter months or winter day. Exactly. Yeah. So that mimics the shift from summer to fall. So we're okay. seeing a shortening of day length. Mm-hmm. So do you just look at the winter climates with the stink bugs? Uh, no, actually. So uh, one of the other objectives of my research project is to characterize the seasonal variation in their stress tolerance. So not only did I look in the winter, I also collected, I went out and took field samples of BMSB and measured their tolerance to those same stressors as well. So just curious, um, where do you get these samples of the the stink bugs which fields are you are you collecting these from so i had field sites in hamilton and london and those range from urban field sites so someone's front yard where they had a lot of bmsb in their catalpa tree to doing surveys in um agricultural settings so in cornfields soy fields Mm -hmm. we would do sweeps and visual surveys and Mm -hmm. collect whatever we found um so a little bit of everywhere yeah Wow. And then you take them back to the lab to, I guess, manipulate their temperature, their light cycles to induce uh, diapause. And, uh... So I wouldn't use those ones for the lab colony itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that I collected throughout the summer, I would bring directly to Western and take mm-hmm. measurements of 
uh, their cold tolerance. So I'd measure supercooling point, uh, their lower lethal temperatures, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as their hemolymphosmolality. Okay. And then I would measure their water balance as well. So water content, water loss rate, mm-hmm. and energy stores. Okay. So these bugs aren't really being manipulated. So you just collect whatever you find in the field and whatever measurements you take is what the natural baseline is for these for these stink bugs, right? Throughout the summer, yes. Okay, throughout yeah. the summer. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty cool. So you do a lot of traveling then. <laughs> yeah, it was a little okay. bit a little bit busy throughout the summers. Okay. But I guess that's kept me busy. Yeah, yeah. it's fun. <laughs> I mean, I'm not traveling anywhere. I'm staying in the lab most of the time. Yeah must be refreshing to get out and and see that right yeah it's it's nice to get some fresh air every once in a while yeah so you know clearly these stink bugs are overwintering and they're living multiple years if they're able to withstand the winter and live on to the next year uh, are there any differences or are you taking into account any potential differences in age in these bugs or can you i guess distinguish between age um for the most part they don't live several years i've okay. never i've never I don't know if anyone's ever actually looked at that in the field, mm. uh, but from what I've seen in the lab, they generally don't live that long. Usually six months is the maximum, I would say. Okay. Um, so age isn't the biggest factor. Um, yeah, I don't know. So they only live around six months. So I guess, do they live to see a full year cycle? Does that contribute to whether they enter diapause or if they're breeding, that sort of thing. So in terms of seasonal cycles, Mm -hmm. um, eggs are laid throughout the summer. So Mm -hmm. um, overwintering adults will come out of their overwintering sites. So they'll leave the garage, they'll leave the Mm -hmm. attic, and they will begin to lay eggs in Mm -hmm. around June. Mm -hmm. Uh, And throughout the summer, there will be different periods of egg laying. And the eggs that are laid in June, for example, will hatch and they will turn into adults. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll age into adults. And then those adults are the ones that are likely going to be overwintering again for the next year. Okay. Yes. I see. Yeah. So there's sort of an overlap then from adult to egg. To exactly. Adult and, exactly. Okay. And yeah. for the most part there, uh, in Ontario anyways, we've only seen one generation. So okay. one group of adults emerging, laying eggs, and then mm-hmm. those future adults will then overwinter as well. Okay, so I guess they're considered pests, like you said, in in Ontario. Do you know what we are doing to sort of combat them eating all our crops and and that sort of thing? Yeah, um, so there has been research done on potential biocontrol agents. Mm -hmm. So a biocontrol agent is, uh, for example, you can bring in a natural predator or a natural parasitoid, and these are groups of insects that will attack an invasive pest. Mm-hmm. So in Asia, in their native range, there are wasp species that will lay their eggs within the eggs of BMSB as well. Okay. And their offspring will develop on the body or using the body of BMSB and will hatch after that as well. Mm-hmm. So oh. there has been research done in North America, here in Ontario, actually, in uh, Dr. Garrippe's lab mm-hmm. by some of her PhD students and her as well, looking at parasitoid interactions in BMSB. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, The world of nature is a very savage one. It's very, (laughs) very interesting. Yeah. I guess, is there any danger? I mean, there's that whole story about the old lady who swallowed uh, an ant or a spider, was it? 
Then she swallowed an anteater after that, to, and it just leads what? to all these extra problems. I don't think I've heard that one. I can't tell if you're I don't joking. I think I've or heard not. that one. Is that not how it goes? Well, I'm just, there may be that possibility that this parasitoid insect may actually cause more problems if it's uh, driving out an invasive species already. Is there any potential for that? So there is, and that's why a lot of biocontrol programs, well, all biocontrol programs, have to do extensive screening before they will release anything. So okay. uh, a, a typical example is the Asian lady beetle, which was brought over uh, mm-hmm. to control pest populations. And the Asian lady beetle population exploded in Canada and North America. And since then, mm-hmm. other beetle populations or lady beetle populations have started to decline. Wow. This was this was years ago. So this has already happened. This this, is this has happened. So I've um, never heard of this. Yeah. Yeah. So when when you are looking into biocontrol programs, mm-hmm. you need to consider the ramifications it would have on native parasitoid species as well as mm-hmm. native stink bug species, because okay. you don't want them to attack the eggs of native stink bugs as well. Right. Or you don't want them to outcompete native parasitoids. Mm-hmm. So you have to take in all those factors before before you can pursue anything like this, yeah. So what are some of your goals leading out of the master's? Do you, do you plan to pr- potentially pursue a PhD in the same field, John? Um, I have thought about it. At this mm-hmm. point, I would like to um, leave academia for a little bit, get a job, and mm-hmm. from there kind of see what career opportunities arise. And if further down the road I need a PhD for something that I'm really interested in or if the right project comes up, mm-hmm. um, then maybe I would pursue a PhD. But at this point, I think I'm ready to leave academia. I've been in school for quite a while now. Yeah. Going on a decade, I'm sure, probably. Uh, If you're counting high school and undergrad and (laughs) everything, yeah. The majority of life. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) I think it's a little bit of a change of scenery would be nice Mm -hmm. for now. It's refreshing to hear other graduate students leave academia and go somewhere else because were reared in graduate school to think, you know, we have to stay in academia after the master's is a, is a PhD and after the PhD is a postdoc. And exactly. So it's nice to, you know, broaden the horizons a little bit and see what else is out there yeah. other than, you know, just grad school. So I like that. I also I like that path. just a healthy and positive attitude, having, mm-hmm. you know, your options open and mm-hmm. being happy with, yeah. Yeah, it'll, it'll be nice, I think. You can always go back to school. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It seems like there's a wide variety of what you can do with this sort of degree, with this sort of background. So can you help us understand what you can do after, you know, studying this and within Agriculture Canada and that sort of thing? Yeah. So I'm personally trying to keep all doors open. Mm-hmm. Um, coming from a background of pest management and being able to apply that biocontrol, mm-hmm. um, I'm looking into potential career options working in greenhouses and agricultural systems Mm -hmm. as an IPM specialist. So uh, IPM stands for Integrated Pest Management. So looking after rearing programs for natural enemies and parasitoids to be used in a greenhouse environment or agricultural environments to kind of cut back on pests. Um, The reason it's called integrated is because you're using Mm -hmm. different strategies. So you're using strategies Mm -hmm. such as biopesticides or mm-hmm. um, population control measures like exactly said, like exactly insects. so it's not just a one-tier approach you're right. using multiple different mechanisms yeah i was going to ask you before in your opinion which would be better the more parasitoid option to clear out a pest such as this or one of those biopesticides so do you think in combination is better is one superior to the other again it takes 
consider you have to take into consideration mm -hmm. the effects on other species as well. Right. So a lot of talk that's going on now is with bees and with neonics, mm -hmm. and how yes, it's it's mm. very good for keeping other pests away, but with other insects that are using those same nutrients and those same resources, mm -hmm. we're seeing negative effects on them as well. So a lot of a lot of biocontrol and integrated pest management programs are very much case by case. Mm -hmm. So depending on the severity of the pest and looking at your possible control avenues that you can take is mm -hmm. very insect dependent or species dependent. So trying to take a very holistic approach to the, exactly. the entire situation. Exactly. Trying to take the the approach that leads to the least amount of damage. And, and I'd, I'd assume, I guess, that you know, if there was a commercial interest in uh, clearing out these pests, it would be primarily uh, profit-driven. Whereas, you know, if we're looking at more holistic options and protecting the public and potential long-term harms, there might be some government intervention that might be involved. So, it, would it be more, I guess, government-related jobs, or this pest control uh, management IPM uh, industry more be commercial or industry-based? Yeah, again, that all kind of depends. There are there are lots of research programs within Agriculture Canada as well as the Ontario Ministry of Farming and Rural Affairs. So there are a lot of research programs within those two disciplines that are looking at biocontrol as well as integrated pest management. But you also do get the private industries as well. So you have your greenhouse growers and you have your mm. farmers who need people to survey their mm -hmm. crops and look for uh, insect pests and plant pathogens and things like that. So there's a use for all of these different uh, exactly, aspects. Exactly, exactly. Because at the end of the day, food is important and yeah. <laughs> So you sound super busy with your thesis and finishing up your master's, I guess, because this is your second year. So what do you do other than your research work here at Western to occupy your time? Um, that's a that's very totally good fair. <laughs> that's totally fair. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, what do I do? I don't even know. Well, I'm thinking how I would answer that, and it's 100%. I would say sleep. How would you answer that? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess sleep. I mean, I, I like to, you know, do some physical activities too. I play some soccer. I like to, okay. I like yeah. to swim yeah. every now and then. That's for sports. Fresh air yeah. is yeah. always nice, but you don't mm -hmm. get much of that inside no. of the lab. Yeah, so I play softball with a few friends in the department. That yeah, okay. okay. Takes my there mind away from things. Even yeah. just going out for for dinner or for yeah. drinks or to the grad club quick. Like it's yeah. a nice it's refresher a little, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you've clearly signed your, your blood over into the lab, John, and yeah. that's obviously what we need here in yeah. uh, it's a you know, successful yeah. graduate students. Uh, do you have any, I guess, connections, or uh, would you like to sh give a shout-out to your lab or anywhere that, if anybody's interested, can learn about what we've talked about here a little bit more? Yeah, so if you want to know anything more about my lab or uh, the things that I do or people in my lab do, you can visit, you can kind of Google the Sinclair Lab at UWO uh, online. Uh, if you have any questions related directly to my project, you can email me at jciancio at uwo.ca. I'm sure I don't have Twitter or Instagram or anything like that where I <laughs> take cool bug pictures and post them. Um, you should so do that. I yeah. probably should viral. start that. Yeah, It'll definitely take off. Yeah. So thank you very much, John, for joining us today on this podcast, as well as Roger as well. Um, you can catch us at 6 p.m. on CHRW 94.9 FM. You can find our full episodes at gradcast.ca. Or if you want to get involved or have any questions about the show, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Again, this was a production of SOGS, and thank you for listening.
The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.